0: Today, I suspect you're going to find out that we as Christians have more in common with a group of people that lived 2,500 years ago than those that lived in this country 250 years ago. It would have been hard to believe for some of us who had never really studied the Old Testament narrative that it could be so relevant to our faith in modern times, and yet haven't we seen each week something powerful from God? And These next several weeks probably will be the most relevant to us as Christians in the modern context of any of the passages we'll have studied and will study. You see, we're in that stage where the people of Israel are learning to live a life of faith in a culture that is totally contrary to that faith. In fact, their question is the same one on the lips of so many of us nowadays, and that's the big question we're asking today. How can we live as believers in an unbelieving world? We've tracked the story of Israel to this point and you have to remember that before this exile, prior to coming to Babylon, they lived in a culture whose very institutions supported their faith and the lifestyle that grew out of that faith. Does that sound familiar? They have traveled to a different culture that is antagonistic to that faith as we're going to learn right now. We have not traveled geographically, we have traveled chronologically over these past centuries from a a culture that at one time, in fact, all of Western culture was so influenced by different forms of Christianity, you could argue the legitimacy of them, you could argue the purity of its various forms throughout history, but there's no arguing that Western civilization grew out of the development and the bringing of the Christian faith to much of the world. And it wasn't really that long ago that the culture in the United States, the very institutions themselves, presumed a support of uh, a Christian faith, a faith in one true God. We're no longer that. We're no longer considered a Christian nation. In fact, we look at this region as post-Christian. These six states that we call New England... Outside of New England, when people ask me, now, what exactly is New England? <laughs> I always say, well, it's the six most northeast states in part of Florida six months out of the year. <laughs> George Gallup called these six states among the top ten least churched, and the other four are lower populations, Uh, Nevada and, and those areas out northwest as well. So where we live is the largest population block of unchurched people in the whole United States. If you took every unchurched person in the United States, it would be the fourth largest nation in the world. Worcester sits at the heart of New England. You and I today are worshiping in the middle of the largest unchurched population group of the fourth largest unchurched nation in the world. It's important that we recognize that when we think about what our expectations ought to be about government, about culture around us, and when we think about what we're called to be in this culture. When you get to that point where you recognize that the mission field starts right there, right outside our door, you start asking that same question that I believe Daniel and the other three young men we're going to look at this morning were asking How do I live as a believer? In an unbelieving world, how do we profess Jesus as he claimed to be himself, the way, the truth, the life in a world that claims that there are many ways to God, that there are many truths, and that there are many lifestyles that you can choose? I think we're going to find some really powerful lessons here in the book of Daniel, When you live in a pluralistic, open society, there's two things that become a challenge to people of faith. The first is this whole issue that often comes up how dare you say that your way is the way? How can you profess that you have the truth? That's very intolerant. Then the second thing in a secular society is the question how can that God of the Bible exist with all the suffering in the world? If you're engaged at all, if you bring your faith into the marketplace, into the school place, into the neighborhood, those are often the two things that you'll hear come up. Don't you think that's true? This story that we're going to look at today addresses both of those. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Those names now sound familiar to some of you, or for those of you that have grown up on veggie Tale, Shackrach and Benny. <laughs> Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead, which made uh, these four very popular among the whole school there. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So let me give you the background to this situation so that we can understand the context and better relate the circumstance to our setting today. You remember when we talked about the exile, it happened really in three stages. Nebuchadnezzar himself went to Jerusalem twice. He came on his way back from Egypt before he actually inherited the throne from his father, wins a victory, does not destroy the city at that point in time, but he does bring 10,000 of the city's elite. The reason why he's doing that, as we see in the story, is because he wants to indoctrinate them. Babylon being a pluralistic, polytheistic, open society. The way they maintain their authority over other kingdoms was to bring their rulers to Babylon where they were to be trained and indoctrinated. If we can win over, if we can infiltrate the thinking of the leadership of a people, then we have the people. Now, I want to give you a little background so that we understand how Daniel and his friends are acting. I want you to go to Jeremiah 29. I want to tell you what's going on in chapter 28. In Jerusalem, a false prophet and other prophets in and among the exiled people are saying in two years, the exile is going to be over. Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall and you're going to come back. God's going to reestablish his glory in Jerusalem and we're going to be a great people again. And they were encouraging the people who were part of the exile to not move into the city stay outside of the capital city, to not assimilate in. And they are also being encouraged, therefore, to pray against the city, to pray against Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah comes back now after he speaks to the Lord about this and pronounces judgment on Hananiah, who dies within the year, which says a lot about what God thinks about people who make promises in his name that are not true. We make very light of God told me these days. I think a lot of people will be judged for speaking their wisdom and calling it God's because God does not like to be imitated. Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles. We're going to begin reading in verse 4, chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. We'll pause there. As opposed to what these false prophets were saying, two years, don't assimilate into the city. Pray against the city. God's actual message is really quite startling and quite different. And what we see is a blueprint for how you live a life of faith in an unbelieving, in a pluralistic, in an open society. But before we do that, I want you to just think back to the very first thing that has happened to Daniel and those that we now know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have been given new names by the Babylonians. Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel, one of the gods of Babylon, is my God. They all received a name that conjured up one of the Babylonian gods, as opposed to the God of Israel. The intent there is very clear. Remember I talked about them wanting to assimilate them. But there's something in that idea of them having two names that gives us, I think, an inkling as to how we are to react in culture around us, even though we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. You see, most of us think that when it comes to how you live out your faith in a secular culture, you have one of two options. You can separate Or you can assimilate, right? You can either pull yourself out and isolate yourself from culture, which a lot of sects of Christianity and other groups have done, the most extreme of which in our culture are the Amish and the Mennonites, the more extreme Mennonites. You can separate yourself out from culture. Or the fear is if you don't do that, you'll assimilate, you'll become like the culture, That isn't what God calls them to do. Let's look at three basic things that Jeremiah says to them. And then we're going to go to Daniel and see how these three things are fleshed out. The first thing he says is, see God's big picture. Twice he says, I'm the one that carried you to Babylon. This is my doing. You are in this city as part of my plan for you. Get that picture. We stopped reading at verse 10. Let's pick up at verse 11. This is a well-known verse for many Christians. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. When you take that verse out of context and put it on a wall plaque in your bathroom someplace, it sounds like God's saying, I've got great plans for you. You just need to do the right thing. And now we read the story, and these people aren't going to get back to Jerusalem for 70 years. Their hopes, their wishes are not going to come true. And God has done this to them. He's assuring them that his actions that they find inconceivable... It's those things that God has done. He's saying, I I know the plans I have for you. The hardship you're experiencing is mine. And I know what I'm doing. And trust me, you may not feel it, but my plans for you are plans for a hope and a future. That changes that verse, doesn't it? His plans for hope and a future for them were 70 years in Babylon. Babylon. That's the first thing, get the bigger picture. The second thing he says is settle in, settle into the city. He describes it quite specifically, build houses, settle down, get into business, marry, become an integral part of the city. As Christians, we think our choices are assimilate or separate. God has a different path in mind. He wants us to love the city to settle into it. But then he also says, increase in number. Don't decrease in number. He's really saying to them, become a part of the city. Don't assimilate, but integrate. But don't lose your identity. Grow as my people where you are. Grow and maintain your identity. The third thing he says is that we are to seek the good of that city, That's really powerful. This is the people that the prophets have been saying, God's going to tear them down, he's going to destroy their evil because of what they've done to our temple and to God. Pray against them, pray for the death, pray for the collapse and punishment of Nebuchadnezzar. What does God say? Verse seven, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord that it will prosper because when it prospers, you prosper. Now think about that. We are to be so engaged with the culture around us that as the culture prospers, that's a key to our blessing. Do you get what God's calling us to? It's what Tim Keller calls spiritually biculturalism. I love that phrase. Like the children of Israel, we are citizens of God's kingdom. We have a name in the kingdom of God. We are sons and daughters of the living God through Jesus Christ. But yet we live in the city of man. We're not owned by that city. we rather obey God than man. But the two are not mutually exclusive. The kingdom of God expands through us as we bless and integrate into culture around us. What God is calling us to do is to love the city of man in order to bless the city of God. I love that. It's so powerful. Love the city of man for the sake of the city of God. That's the blueprint that Jeremiah has given to them. So let's look now back at Daniel 1 and see how they do that. Now remember, he's been brought into this this educational system three years of intensive training in all things Babylonian. Part of all of this includes the mystical arts magic, sorcery, Daniel became one of the most elite magi of Babylon. And yet in the midst of it, not separating himself from it, respecting the authorities who were there, submitting to that training, becoming a part of that elite leadership He still preserved his faith. He didn't become mastered by that knowledge. He mastered the knowledge of all these things, but yet he maintained his integrity. And the key verse is verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Let's talk about this a little bit. Why just vegetables and water? A lot of people will say that we should all be vegetarians and just drink water because that 's what that 's what daniel did that 's really not the point here. Uh, once you move into the new testament there 's this interesting story about a sheep that fell from heaven and all sorts of odd meat that God calls clean for us to eat this can 't be what what the story is here what 's going on here that Daniel asks To simply not have to eat anything from the king's table because to the Babylonians the wine and the meat that came from the king's table were inseparably associated with their mysticism and their idolatry for Daniel this represented allowing the influence of those things to be given credit for who he was and he said, I'm not going to defile myself. And the second aspect is that many of the foods that the Babylonians ate were unclean to the Jewish law. And so the simple thing for Daniel was vegetables and water. It was a safe thing. He could eat and still honor God. He found a respectful solution. I think that's really important. He didn't rebel. He didn't stand up and say, I'm not going to eat this stuff. Don't you know that your gods are false gods? They act with such respect that God gave them favor with their teachers and supervisors. And then, of course, God blessed their obedience. They achieve positions of leadership. They are the top of the magi class. The fact that they respectfully found solutions to be able to stay true to their faith without creating enemies allowed as God blessed for people to see God and to bless God. We move into chapter 2 and we see this famous dream by Nebuchadnezzar the image with feet of clay. And it's a whole interesting study to talk about the potential symbolism of that. But that's not what we're going to look at today. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he is so shaken by it that he wants an explanation. But he knows that anybody can hear a dream and imagine some interpretation. So he says, if these people are really diviners of truth, they ought to be able to tell me what the dream is. So he puts this test out to his advisors tell me what my dream was, then tell me what it means. Of course, no one could do it. Nebuchadnezzar was so angry, he said, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill all of you. I include Daniel. So Daniel comes to the Lord, and God gives him not only the dream, but its interpretation. We pick up the story, uh, verse uh, 24 of chapter 2. Then Daniel went to uh, Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, this is what I want you to hear. No wise man, no enchanter or magician, no diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. What you've asked, no human man can do. And no God that they worship can do that for them. And then he goes on. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. And then he tells the story. He gives the interpretation. And the response is very powerful. Jump forward with me to verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of the gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this truth. The king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon. So God blesses, but notice what Daniel does. First of all, he comes to God. He beseeches not just on his behalf, but on behalf of all of the magi, all the magicians, all the diviners. He saves all of their lives. Then he gives credit to God for what's accomplished. Never in any of these settings does Daniel or The other three do anything but be assertive about their faith. It's not antagonistic towards men. It's just firmly convicted and clear and verbal. It's really powerful to see. It builds to this ultimate encounter in the third chapter. Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge gold-covered image out on the plain And he requires all of the leaders from all over the world that he had conquered and brought to Babylon to bow in worship to this golden image. Now, didn't he just say, Daniel's God is the God of gods? Didn't he just have sort of a conversion experience? No, what he basically did was assimilate the Jewish God into his thinking, but this is still a pluralistic society. Some people suggest it was Nebuchadnezzar himself. There's nothing in Babylonian culture that suggests that any king of Babylon ever asked people to worship him directly. The image represents all faiths, all the gods of Babylon. Think about this, because I think this is going to really land where we are. He's saying to them, it's okay for you to worship your God, as long as you validate other gods too. As long as you're willing to acknowledge that other people's beliefs are just as valid, you can worship your God. What this represents is his effort to enforce pluralism, just like giving them new names, just like indoctrinating them. What they want to do is enforce this pluralistic openness with everyone. A free and open society had to affirm all truths as valid. And therefore, people of one truth, one faith, one God, become enemies to that society. In our culture today, we take pride in being multicultural, being tolerant of all faiths. And I personally appreciate a culture that allows me as a Christian to express my faith with equal liberty as other faiths. I do respect that our country allows that. But that doesn't mean I acknowledge all faith is valid, I just think the gospel wins when it's given a level playing field. I I, I value living in our society. There's a lot tougher societies we could be trying to live out our faith, our unique belief in God. But the challenge for us is that in a pluralistic, secular, open society, the one true virtue of that society is tolerance. We bow to the idol of inclusiveness that says your truth is as valid as my truth. Your view of God is as valid as my view of God. Society says it's okay to believe what you want as long as you validate my belief. In that society, tolerance is the highest virtue, which means that any faith that believes there is a God, a specific God who reveals himself, and that there is a path to him, That religion is committing the one evil in a pluralistic society, and that they call intolerance. Increasingly, that's what you and I are facing. And the temptation is to assimilate, to back down, because it's a lot more convenient. You don't see, interestingly enough, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego making placards and going and standing in front of the king's palace about idol worship walking around angry, shouting. No, they are conscientious objectors, civil disobedience. They just don't show up. The only reason they're found out is because some of the other magicians who are jealous of them find out and tell the king. We pick up the story at that point. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 3. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Notice, first of all, the incredible reverence to Nebuchadnezzar, the deference that they show him. Three times, O king. Notice, in contrast, Nebuchadnezzar's rage (laughs) at they're not following the path of tolerance. And what that tells us is something really important. See, a secular society has a veneer of tolerance, but at its core, it's actually intolerant. True Christianity to that society appears to be intolerant, but at its core, it's actually utterly tolerant. And we're going to explore that as we wrap up here. Here's what happens. He throws them in the fire. So mad, he has them stoke it up. He's just really challenged their God over his gods. He wants to make sure his gods win. So this isn't just anger. This is competition. He has them stoke the fire up, and then he throws them in, and what does he say? Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. We've already talked about how this story addresses the whole thing of how can you say there's only one way to God? Isn't that intolerant? Well, We've actually discovered that those that want to impose on you, you know that that bumper sticker that says coexist and has all the different world religions? The only people that think that's possible are members of about three of those symbols (laughs) because everybody else claims to have the truth. It's not even possible for that coexistence to happen without people actually abandoning their faith, which in the end means tolerance is intolerant. Tolerance requires that people of conviction abandon their conviction in order to fit in. So what do we learn about suffering then through the image of the fire? Let me just hit that quickly, and we'll we'll come back to it next week. The fourth man in the fire, the angel of the Lord, He's seen as divine by Nebuchadnezzar. Something about him was greater than the other three men in the furnace. Throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord who speaks interchangeable with the Lord is viewed as the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Christ in the furnace. I want you to look at how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Look at verse 28 the three men come out. They're saved. They're unharmed. Verse 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God, and this is the key phrase, no other God can save in this way. What is it about Christianity, about the person and work of Christ, that sets it apart as unique? It's the way. God saves us. It's the way God interacts with us. While other faiths claim to have their corner of the market on the truth, their God is a God of intolerance. Their God is a God who subjugates, who forces his will. The God of our faith, the God of the Bible, who is personified in the person of Jesus Christ is not a God who subjugates, but a God who incarnates Who enters into our suffering, our furnaces, participates with us in the suffering, enters into it, is present with us, and according to scripture, took the worst of our suffering. It's no mistake that this is Jewish men in a furnace. Think about that. Our whole modern idea of a loving God and innocent people suffering is often argued based on Jewish people by the millions who lost their lives in furnaces. And that some would say, how can there be a loving God who did that? That actually argues for the God of the Bible. Not because it wasn't horrific, but because the God of the Bible enters into the furnace. It's also no mistake that when the Bible refers to the final judgment of the human race, it talks about the furnace of fire that those who do evil will be cast into. Christ with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar is the same Christ that entered into hell that bore the furnace of the wrath of God on the cross in order to bless and bring grace and mercy into our life. And in the same way, he calls us into the furnace. He calls us into the furnace because the same path by which Christ brought mercy and grace to us is the path by which through our passing through the furnace, he brings grace and mercy to the world around us. One of the most powerful statements in this whole passage is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, the God who is God can save us from the fiery furnace. But notice they don't predict that that's what he'll be delivered from. They don't say, he's gonna save us from the fiery furnace. He says, he's gonna save us from your hand one way or another because they had an eternal focus. And then they turned to him and said, and even if he doesn't save us, We're not going to bow. We're not going to bow. What an incredible picture of how to engage culture around us, people of conviction, people of grace and mercy, but people who are willing to die to suffer at the hands of those that would find us their definition of evil in order to show them the true glory and grace of God. Love the city of man. Pray for the peace of that city, the wholeness of that city. Invest yourself in the city of man. Pray that God will prosper the magicians and the politicians. Because when God blesses the city through you, you're blessed. And through it, they in turn, at least some, will turn around and bless him. Nebuchadnezzar comes really close. He gets there next week. Let's pray together. there's so much here for us. It's so easy just to assimilate, just to give up, to go the path of least resistance. And when we do that, we abandon the city of God. We abandon the purposes of God. We We actually get in the way of the purposes of God because you want to bless the city of man through us, but you can only do that when we reflect you, when we honor you, when we refuse to become defiled When we engage with love, when we work for the good of people around us, but with courage stand for the Christ who we serve and who we love, who gave everything that we might have life in him. In Jesus' name, amen.